Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the remains of a prehistoric mastodon are discovered in Daytona Beach, which is an extinct prehistoric elephant that was quite common in Florida, believe it or not, during the last ice age. And, and by identifying the teeth, I could identify the species of animal. Remembering citrus stands along US-1. In the late 40s, my aunt made all of the juice, my Aunt Clyde Kennedy. She made it on a hand squeezer. It was hand cranked. Scholars discuss early attempts to colonize Florida. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. In November of 2011, bulldozers at a site on Nova Road in Daytona Beach uncovered two large tusks and other remains of a mastodon, a prehistoric relative of the elephant. 13,000 years ago, mastodon were plentiful in Florida. When the mastodon remains were uncovered, city workers contacted the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona. Zach Zacharias is Senior Curator of Education and Curator of History at the Museum of Arts and Sciences and says that his facility has an eclectic collection. The museum is about 50 years old. It started off, believe it or not, as a children's museum, a uh, natural history museum for children, and it's involved into really... Uh, an incredible museum here in the southeastern United States, if not really becoming a world-class museum. Uh, we have collections from all over the world, and we bring the world to Daytona Beach. We have uh, the largest collection of Cuban art in the free world outside of Cuba. We have a Chinese uh, collection. We have an incredible collection of American art. We have the second largest collection of Coca-Cola artifacts on public display. Uh, we have trains, railroad cars, uh, an incredible skeleton of a giant ground sloth that's one of the best in the world. So the thing about the Museum of Arts and Sciences at Daytona Beach is that there's something there for everybody. And I always call it kind of a mini Smithsonian, although we are a Smithsonian affiliate. I ran into some visitors that came down from D.C. and they walked to the museum. They were really impressed. And they said, this is just like the Smithsonian, but it's like a smaller version. It's not 10 million square feet. <laughs> so it's about 115,000 square feet currently. What started out as a regular workday at the Museum of Arts and Sciences quickly turned into an adventure in prehistoric archaeology when the city of Daytona contacted Zacharias asking for his assistance. I was really excited about the upcoming Thanksgiving vacation that I was going to take to Chicago with my family uh, to go see the roots of where some of my family came from on my dad's side. And uh, really just kind of coasting <laughs> to the to the holiday. And I get this frantic call and these emails saying, we found something in Daytona Beach. Can you help identify it? 
And luckily, they sent a picture that is easily identifiable. They sent the lower jaw with the teeth intact of what's called an American Mastodon, which is an extinct prehistoric elephant that was quite common in Florida, believe it or not, during the last ice age. And, and by identifying the teeth, I could identify the species of animal. As Zacharias explains, the mastodon was just one of many types of prehistoric animals that lived in Florida 13,000 years ago. There was a pretty amazing array of uh, extinct Ice Age mammals that roamed Florida at one time. Uh, On display at the museum is one of the best skeletons in the world of a giant ground sloth. Uh, The one we have has got a pretty crazy name. It's called Aromatherium laurelardi, and it's the most complete in the world. It's a huge 13-foot 10,000-pound herbivore that roamed through uh, Daytona Beach and was found close to the museum. It's a spectacular skeleton, but there were mammoths, mastodons, giant armadillos, uh, there were saber-toothed tigers, uh, dire wolves. Florida even had uh, ancient rhinoceroses as well, believe it or not. The extinct mastodon and mammoths that lived in Florida are related to each other and the African elephant that survives today. The woolly mammoth and the mastodon are are distant cousins of each other. And when you examine the skeletons, the first thing that's really noticeable is that they have different teeth. The mammoth, which we didn't really have woolly mammoths in uh, Florida, but we had Colombian mammoths, uh, which were huge, the the largest of the mammoths, and they had these huge block-like molars uh, that ground down uh, grasses because they were grazers. And the mastodon was, as I always like to say, sort of like the linebacker of elephants. It was thick and stocky and husky, and it had fur, but it had much different teeth, Uh, these high-crowned teeth uh, with these huge molars, and they ate different types of of plant material. They ate twigs and leaves and branches, but they're all in the elephant family. Signs of arthritis indicate that the animal called the Nova Road Mastodon was fully grown and probably about 50 years old when it died. Tests to determine how long ago the mastodon died are inconclusive, but Zacharias says it was at least 13,000 years. We have to give it a range. The range is going to be 13,000 years ago when they went extinct, possibly back to maybe 120 or 130,000 years ago when it died there on Nova Road, not too far from the Museum of Arts and Science, just north of it, actually about a mile and a half or so. And the reason that is that the layer that we found the animal in, the skeletal remains, is about 10 to 12 feet below the surface. That's the same level that we found our incredible, prestigious giant ground sloth back in the 1970s, where that was found. And that was dated out at around that time period. Now, here's an interesting thing, is that we have sent off some samples to the Smithsonian, which we are an affiliate of, and we sent them to uh, a Dr. Christine Franz. And unfortunately, when she tested the material uh, we, they could not get enough collagen out, so they could never do a, a radiocarbon dating of it. So we're not going to ever really know because the DNA and the material that they needed just was it was just too waterlogged and too degraded. When Zach Zacharias first arrived at the Nova Road site, he saw massive ground-moving machinery that had already caused significant damage to the mastodon remains. Well, when we got the call. They sent us this picture of this incredible piece of, uh, of the lower jaw called the mandible with the teeth intact. So we, I went out there and poked around, and immediately I found uh, two tusks uh, just barely sticking out of the north wall of this pond that they were dra- building a drainage pond, the city of Daytona Beach was. And they were very gracious to stop the digging and call me out and to take a look to see what was there. And we started coming up with a lot of the mastodon material. 
Unfortunately, though, these are huge industrial bulldozers, and they're pulling out all this dirt and this muck, and they're carrying off to build roads or whatever type of fill they're going to use it for. And so a lot of the skeleton, unfortunately, got smacked pretty hard by these bulldozers. But we do have some really nice pieces from this mastodon, and we probably have 100 to 200 bones, but a lot of those are fragments. But we have the nice jaw and teeth, and we have some nice tusk pieces as well. And if you're going to have just pieces, those are some of the nicest pieces you want to have. As Zacharias and his colleagues began sifting through the pieces of bone, they realized that more than one mastodon had been uncovered. When we got all the bones back to the museum, we set up a makeshift laboratory. We started uh, sorting and classifying ribs here and broken mandible piece here and vertebrae over here. Uh, all of a sudden, out came, popped up this... Uh, almost like a baby tusk uh, to a juvenile. And then we found pieces of uh, smaller teeth uh, that were not uh, the, the grown adult. So we realized that we had more than one individual here. So probably what we had moving through there was an adult and a child, not an infant, but a child. And my theory is, and I don't have a way to really prove this, is that they probably got uh, stuck in some type of a muck or a thick mud and they couldn't get out the rest of the herd was not they kept moving on because um, this area uh you know thousands and thousands of years ago was a coastal lowland environment and they they liked that area here in florida photographs of the site where the mastodon bones were discovered show distinctly different layers of dirt indicating different time periods and environmental conditions they call that strata the layers of dirt and so above it was a marine layer, a lot of beach sand, shells. And then below that, going down about 10 feet from the surface, was a dark, mucky, thick area where there's land was exposed. There was mulching processes going on, animals living. And then below that again, a couple feet down, was another marine layer where there was uh, sand and shells. So sandwiched in between these uh, beach sands was this black kind of thick black layer, and that's when Florida was out of the water, and these animals were living and dying and, and roaming around. So Florida's history, geologic history in a nutshell, is Florida kind of being out of water and underwater, and parts of it being out of water, and parts of it being underwater again, and we're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years here for sure. People show up in Florida at about the same time that the mastodon and other prehistoric animals become extinct. Zacharias theorizes that the two incidents may be related. Paleontologists, the scientists that study ancient animals, have been trying to figure this out for a very long time. Uh, what happened to these animals? And nobody knows for sure, but one of the theories possibly is that I like and that I kind of uh, agree with is that these ancient people about ten to 12,000 years ago called the Clovis people, named after an archaeological site in New Mexico, and they had these large spear points, a little town there, and they became these these uh, this group of people that came in across the Bering Land Bridge and in about a thousand years or so marched across the continent killing and hunting and eating a lot of these large ice age animals like mammoths and mastodons uh, and horse uh, and buffalo and possibly had caused their extinction and maybe in conjunction with environmental change those two things uh, knock them out. And then when you have extinctions, then you get a little bit of a domino effect. So when mammoths and buffalo and, and uh, mastodons go extinct, then you're going to get a, your, your dire wolves and your saber-toothed tigers are going to go out too. Zacharias was able to assemble a fascinating collection of mastodon bones, teeth, and tusks from the Nova Road site. 
He explains what happens now. We're going to be redoing our prehistoric Florida gallery where we have our incredible skeleton of the giant ground sloth. We're going to incorporate this mastodon find into that exhibitry. And so now the giant ground sloth will have a friend. <laughs> and they were they live together. You know, they roam together at the same time. Zach Zacharias is senior curator of education and curator of history at the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona Beach, where the newly discovered mastodon remains will be displayed. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. The Florida Historical Society always has a lot of exciting activities, projects, and programs going on that you can be a part of. Visit our website at myfloridahistory.org to find out more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our newsletter, The Society Report, and our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian Gary Mormino. In the 17th century, one of the largest cattle ranches in North America sprawled across north-central Florida. La Chua Ranch got its name from the Tumuquin word for the large sinkholes along Payne's Prairie. The name remains in today's Alachua County. The ranch ranged from the St. John's River across the peninsula to the Gulf Coast marshlands, and from the Santa Fe River to Lake George. At its peak, 
7,000 cattle were herded along trade routes running along the Sewanee and Oklawaha rivers with trails connecting St. Augustine 120 miles away. Ranch hands included African slaves, Mexicans, and Indians. But although Lachua Ranch did not survive English raids in the early 1700s, the traditions endure in Spanish words, lariat, mustang, pinto, lasso, bronco, rodeo. Even the all-American word buckaroo derives from the Spanish name for cowboy, el vaquero. University of South Florida historian Gary Marmino. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. In the past, if you wanted to drive to Miami from the north, the only major road available used to be US-1. Ken Kennedy remembers when citrus stands were a common sight along the road. Janie Gould has more. When US-1 was the only major route from the northeast to Florida, citrus juice stands advertising all-you-can-drink orange juice beckoned to motorists passing through the Indian River region. Citrus man Ken Kennedy literally grew up at the stand that his parents operated in South Vero Beach. They were carrying me down there as a baby because my mom worked down there. When I was little, they'd put me in the bins of fruit. The uh, help was bagging the fruit out of the bin. It was kind of my crib, my baby pen. Now your stand advertised all the juice you can drink for 10 cents. That was it. I don't know who actually came up with that, but most of the fruit stands up and down US-1 did that to draw the people in. And we're talking about tourists. I guess a lot of them had never tasted fresh orange juice. They hadn't, and it was almost like candy to them. They would stand there and drink cup after cup after cup. We served it to them in uh, paper uh, cone cups. After three or four cups, the paper got just droopy. They'd want another cup, you know. Well, give me another dime, you get another cup. You talked to a lot of customers, I imagine, who had never been to this part of the world before. A lot of times, back when uh, US-1 was the only road, they'd stop in... And they'd ask us, how far is Florida? Actually meant, how far is Miami? Did you say that's not our idea of Florida? Yeah, something like that. Did any of them stay and ask questions about the area? Oh, yeah. We had a lot of the same customers that came in year after year. And they just ask about old times. You mean you didn't have air conditioning down here? How did you live? How was the juice made? In the late 40s, my aunt made all the juice. My Aunt Clyde Kennedy, she made it on a hand squeezer. It was hand cranked. You mean somebody had to crank it the whole time she was squeezing? That's correct. It was a crank on a pulley. That was before my time. By the time I was coming up in the business, she did have an electric one. In those days, we didn't have the plastic jugs that we had in later years. So we would go to the Coca-Cola bottling plant and get the gallon glass jugs that the Coke syrup would come in. we just clean them out with Clorox and water. That's what we used to store the juice in, in a Coke icebox. Did you sell souvenirs? Oh, yes. When I was a kid, I can remember they sold alligator 
shoes and handbag. That didn't last but maybe a few years. They're pretty pricey now, I think. Yeah, what we sold in those days was not quite the quality that they have today, if you will. People would walk out in the shoes and get in the rain or something like that, and the shoes would fall apart and they'd bring them back. So that didn't last too long. We sold all the uh, orange blossom perfume and coconut patties, pecan log rolls, serrated spoons to eat grapefruit with and then the sippers that was a big item the plastic sippers that you would stick into the fruit and uh, squeeze the fruit and actually suck the juice out of the fruit do you remember anybody any of the tourists who were heading to quote florida who actually decided to spend some time here in vero beach oh yes a lot of people discovered vero beach and started stopping here instead of going on down to florida but some of the u.s one juice stands including kennedy's have faded from the landscape as the older generation died out, a lot of the younger generation didn't want to work like that. It was hard work. The old generation who grew up in the Depression, they were glad to have the work. In the late 80s, we discovered that it was probably costing us more in labor to hand out the all-you-can-drink for a dime juice. So we just put a couple of dispensers out on the floor. The people helped themselves and it was free. When they'd walk out, they'd grab a gallon of juice and a bag of grapefruit and oranges. We'd probably give away at least 100 gallons a day, but the sales of the fresh fruit and the gallon of juice were very good. That was Ken Kennedy. Kennedy Grove sold the U.S. One store in 1991. The company still grows citrus and packs and ships the fruit from its headquarters in Wabasso. Most of Kennedy's current crop will be headed to markets in Europe and Japan. Cheney Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. St. Augustine is the first permanent European settlement in what is now the United States. Bill Dudley talks with scholars about early attempts at colonization. They never seem to lose their capacity for high expectations, usually too high, of how quickly a settlement would become viable and how profitable it would be. St. Augustine historian Susan Parker. The 16th century saw a host of unsuccessful European attempts to establish a foothold in North America. The Spanish began with Ponce de Leon's Gulf Coast landing in 1521. Then there was San Miguel de Gualiape near present-day Brunswick, Georgia. Beset by bad weather and sickness, it failed in 1526. 600 settlers were reduced to 250 in the space of two months, and those 250 abandoned the site and fled. That could have been the first permanent settlement in what is now the United States. Michael Gannon is the author of Florida, a short history and editor of The New History of Florida. Arriving in Pensacola in 1559, a group of a thousand colonists led by Tristan de Luna got off to a bad start. The poor people at Pensacola had their ships half unloaded when a hurricane hit, and I think certainly those of us today are quite well aware of what Gulf hurricanes can do. And the food went to the bottom of the bay. And so the settlers at Pensacola started out with very little to eat. They hung on for a year and a half and finally finally abandoned it. Then there was Fort Carolyn, founded by French Huguenots near the mouth of the St. John's River in 1564. They were 
two French colonies on the southeastern coast, both of which failed. One was wiped out by the Spanish, but the other one just failed. So this sense that there's myriad possibilities that weren't taken. NYU historian Karen Ordahl Kupperman is the author of 2007's The Jamestown Project and an authority on British colonization. Kupperman says most of us see this early history only in the light of events leading up to the American Revolution. We tend, because we're looking backward from the foundation of the United States, we tend to think of, of, well, it was Jamestown, and then it was Plymouth, and then it was Massachusetts. And there's a kind of straight line trajectory. Whereas if you really look honestly at the early period, you see that there was so much confusion, so many false starts of people who tried to found colonies. And so this kind of straight line trajectory to the founding of the United States obscures the true reality of the founding period. One can only speculate whether any of the 600 soldiers and colonists that landed on the coast of Florida in September 1565, on the feast day of St. Augustine, knew that theirs would survive as the first permanent settlement in the New World. One thing in their favor, Admiral Pedro Menendez de Aviles, a strong and dynamic leader. He was also a shrewd businessman. Menendez was an adelantado. That is, he was a self-financing entrepreneur. He had to supply all of the men, the ships, the food, all of the arms for his expedition to Florida. And when he died, the king decided to take Florida over as a royal colony. Its real plus was its location within an easy sail of the Gulf Stream to protect the Spanish fleet. Because of that proximity to the Gulf Stream, the Spanish felt that they certainly could not let anyone else take over St. Augustine. As the first lasting settlement, St. Augustine was studied closely by the British. They used it as an incentive as well as a model for rival colonies like Roanoke and Jamestown, beginning 20 years later. Roanoke was founded really for the purpose of providing a base for privateering. If St. Augustine had not existed, (laughs) Roanoke would have been much less likely to have been founded when and where it was. It was designed as a base from which English ships could prey on the Spanish ships as they departed through the Florida Channel. Given the adversities, hostile natives, ignorance of weather patterns and growing conditions, disease, even lack of support from home, the fact that any of these American settlements, even the short-lived ones, fared as well as they did, is a testament to the hardiness and determination of these early colonists. I think also I was surprised at the similarity among the people of whether they were Spanish, French, or English. The high expectations, their religiosity, they were all very religious. And sometimes I think we have focused a lot on the Protestant versus Catholic elements and have focused on the differences between them and not how similar they were. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Find out much more about enjoying Florida history today at our website, myfloridahistory.org. Join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.